Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear about the value of patient-centered outcomes research from a geriatrics expert and a doctor of family medicine who specializes in epidemiology. We have a lot of uh, work on transitions in care, so how you manage that dangerous gap between the hospital and home so that people don't wind up having to come back to the hospital. A genetics expert goes over some of the most common genetic abnormalities. The blood test would tell a person whose risk, say, based on age, is half a percent, that her risk in this pregnancy is three percent, say. And a psychology professor discusses psychoanalytic theory. Um, it's, it's sort of based on the idea that things that give us trouble, the symptoms that bring us to therapy, have um, a kind of meaning. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll discuss common genetic abnormalities with a genetics expert and pediatrician. Then, we'll talk with a psychology professor about psychoanalytic theory. But first, we'll learn why patient-centered outcomes research is important. Sometimes as patients, we face medical decisions, and even if we have a great doctor whom we trust, we can make better decisions if we're better informed. That's where the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute comes in. We have with us in the studio today Dr. Joe Selby, who's the executive director of the Institute. With him is Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's the chair of the new Department of Geriatrics at Upstate, and she's also involved in some patient and caregiver-based research as well. Welcome to you both. Thanks for being here. Really nice to be here. I'd like to start by asking you, Dr. Selby, what sort of work does the, and you call it PCORI, Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, what kind of uh, research do you do? Well, PCORI funds research uh, that comes to us because patients or clinicians or, let's say, healthcare delivery systems or, let's say, health plans have a question that, despite all the research that's been done up to this point in time, uh, does the information available to them uh, doesn't help them with the choice or decision they need to make. So any person who practices medicine makes decisions on a daily basis um, and at the same time realizes that they wish they had more information. So sometimes it's as simple as what would really be the right dose of a medication? Or mm. how long do I have to take this medication? What's that? Do I you remember, just as a simple example, 15 or 20 years ago, we were treating people with a uric, common urinary tract infection for 10 days. Mm. And now I think it's one day, two days, Dr. Brangman? Yes. Um, so um, there's all manner of questions. And sometimes it can be, it can be as serious as should I have surgery for this condition or would medical therapy be more uh, better for me? Sometimes it's how do we organize care? Would a care coordinator or another patient with the same condition help me make my decisions? Uh, in Dr. Brangman's area of, uh, of uh, geriatrics, um, we have a lot of research funded precisely in that kind of area in decision making 
around complicated decisions uh, in complicated illnesses. And the patient-centered part of your name, um, this is you choose projects that really affect and, and are sort of from the patient's point of view, things that would help or that a patient would come up with. That's, that's right, a patient, but we always say that um, we want the physician or the patient's clinician and their caregiver, if their mother or their daughter or their father or son are looking after them, we want those people to be very involved too. But, but what we like to say is that, you know, if the National Institutes of Health are a science-driven organization, so most of their insights come from and most of their new directions come from science, we take our direction originally from the patients and the end users of that oh, research. Okay. Then we apply scientific methods to them, but um, we are, um, if I can just use the phrase, stakeholder-driven. Okay. So the research that you do, do you write it up like a, a researcher would write up a paper on some scientific topic? Well, it's, and... it's those same researchers that are writing it up. If I, if okay. Pecori would fund Dr. Brangman to do a study, then she would be writing up the... Okay. Uh, and, and it's that way across the country. And it may so be published in a journal or, or whatever it's, afterward. It's always okay. published, almost always published in a journal. So um, in what way does research that's guided by patients and caregivers, um, how does that produce better results? Because we haven't had this before. Okay. Um, so have you heard the, the phrase, more research is needed? That's, it's, it's a little joke in science. Yes. And, and uh, even in, in uh, journalism, it's often said. And I don't mean to say that in PCORI, uh, we don't still say more research is needed. But our goal is to have research that actually guides the decision. So when somebody applies for our money, we say, tell us which decision this is going to serve, and tell us how you'd implement it depending on how it comes out. So we believe that our research will be um, more apt to change practice. And in fact, the legislation that created us, part of the Affordable Care Act, by the way, um, tells us that when we're reevaluated and Congress decides if we're going to continue, they're going to want to see whether we changed practice. Mm. So we build that right into the solicitation. And, and let me just say one other way in which we're different and what this kind of research looks like. We are much more apt to look at multiple outcomes. So a study always has outcomes. Did this make this outcome better or worse? Did more people live versus die? Did more people have a, um, a heart attack or a stroke? or did fewer people, those are the outcomes. So mm -hmm. we will, in any one study, we will have multiple outcomes. So we will ask about life and death, if that's relevant. We will ask about heart attacks and strokes, certainly hospitalizations, yes. But we will also be inclined to ask about the patient's quality of life, or the, the subjects in the study, their quality of life, their symptoms, how they felt, what were they able to do, and what, we actually use patients in every study to tell us what the important outcomes are in this question. Um, so, you know, when we've talked, when we've, uh, talked about research in the past, you hear the, the word research subjects, but your patients and caregivers, are, it doesn't sound like they're subjects in what you're well, doing. The, so patients in, in our world are subjects oftentimes. Oftentimes the subjects of the research are patients, but patients are there in the study in other ways too. Patients are part of the research team. 
They are investigators. They are on advisory panels. Um, they're there from the very beginning, helping to plan the study. They stick with the research team throughout the study. And then, very nicely, when it comes time to spread the word about this study, they're there to help. They're there to the help yeah. amplify that. Okay. Well, I want to ask you some more about some of the things that you have underway now, but I also wanted to ask Dr. Brangman um, about some local efforts that you're involved in that are similar, that go in hand in hand, right? So as Dr. Selby mentioned, this is a very patient-focused type of research, and um, many researchers come up with an idea. They sit in a room and meet with other researchers, and then they go out to the public to try to get them to sign up for the study, and this really turns that all around. So we were fortunate when we were developing our study team is that we uh, connected with a group here in Syracuse called FOCUS, FOCUS Greater Syracuse, which has already had a reputation of citizen engagement around a number of subjects. Right. So we started to hold a series of community conversations to try to get an idea from people out in the public what were their concerns in terms of, in my case, uh, care as you got older. What were some of the issues? And we talked to uh, patients and caregivers. We talked to different health care providers and agencies. And after a series of conversations, we started to narrow down the kind of questions that they came up with and concerns. And as Dr. Selby mentioned, quality of life was a big issue from the beginning. So um, sometimes kind of facetiously you might hear, well, the patient, the patient died, but the study was a success. Right. And that is really not the goal here because we want to make sure that we're enhancing lives, we're helping people feel better, and we don't want somebody to have a bad outcome just because we thought up a great idea. So with this type of research, we have the ability to engage the average person in the beginning of the study. They are, as Dr. Selby mentioned, a member of the team. And so they met with us. We had to help them feel comfortable in that setting because... Most people, when they are with doctors, they, they may not want to speak up. We had to be very careful that the doctors weren't using all the jargon and the medical terms and that um, our, our families and patients felt comfortable speaking. And we were able to engage around a series of issues about um, aging at home. So people are wanting to age and be able to live at home Right, longer. so people are... Uh, interested in avoiding those crises, you know, those things that happen when you lose control of the ability to make decisions that you might ordinarily make if you had a chance to plan. And they weren't necessarily interested in length of life. They wanted quality of life. Hmm. And they wanted to be able to make decisions with their healthcare team instead of someone telling them what they should do. So we took all of this information, and from that, we started to formulate some of our research questions. Interesting. It doesn't sound like that. Uh, those issues surprise you, though. You've no, probably no. seen that I, in your well, practice. Well, geriatrics, I think, has always had that patient-centered focus, and we've always involved the family. There's very few people who come to my office on their own. Most of them come with either a spouse or an adult child or someone, and so we are used to getting input from more people than just the patient should try to help maintain a quality of life. And in geriatrics, we know we have a lot of complex patients. They have a lot of medical problems. They're not going away. 
but we help people live the best they can with those problems. Well, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Sharon Brangman, the chair of the new Department of Geriatrics at Upstate, and also Dr. Joe Selby, the first executive director of the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, who's at Upstate um, to give a lecture and agreed to spend some time with us. Um, so, Dr. Selby, I wanted to ask more about some of the projects you have underway now. Can you tell us um, what you're looking at and how you decide what to look at? Well, it won't uh, surprise you to hear that we involve patients. And let me just say patients and other stakeholders, because we really think it's most exciting when you get in the room, the patients, a group of clinicians, maybe somebody from a health insurance plan or two. Uh, if it involves drugs, it's even good to have somebody from the manufacturers in the room. So if all of those people can agree on the question, on the right question, it's much more likely that you have actually gotten to the right question. Let me tell you, getting to the right research question is difficult, and research is not cheap. So it's it's makes me, as the director of a funding agency, feel much better to know that um, that there's agreement on this research question going in. So that's the way you'll see us do it. We will hold workshops of all kinds. Uh, we also work a lot with organizations, patient organizations, clinician organizations, payer organizations, um, employer organizations, but we really like to um, uh, get a consensus. We've funded about $2.1 billion worth of research over the last, uh, going on eight years now. And uh, it, we cover everything from uh, you know, skin conditions to end-of-life care, you, you, you name mm. it, prenatal care, a lot in pediatrics, a lot in pediatric obesity, but really uh, a very large amount. I think probably about 28 or 30 percent of our entire give is in the area of aging. One of our largest and first projects was a very large project on preventing falls in the elderly, and it involved several of the leading geriatricians in the country, and the study's been going on for about five years. It's wrapping up now, and we're very interested to see whether uh, bringing nurse practitioners in in a new way to work with doctors' practices and with the patients in them can help people live, just as Dr. Brangman said, independently and not fall. Um, so that's very important. We have a lot of uh, work on transitions in care, so how you manage that dangerous gap between the hospital and home so that people don't wind up having to come back to the hospital. We have a lot of work around so-called palliative care, so um, complex advanced disease, not necessarily the end of life, but where it's really important to concentrate on well-being, on relief of symptoms. We have a lot of work in that area. We have quite a bit of work on how you actually work with patients to express how they'd like to be treated, so-called uh, advanced directives. So, Interesting. So, and a lot of work on patients in nursing homes and, and how one can um, uh, improve decision-making in nursing homes. You know, one of the big dilemmas in nursing homes is whether a person should go to the hospital when they get a little fever or a urinary tract infection or not eating or you name it. So um, probably ways to improve decision-making in those settings. So that's, that's just the... Well, let me ask you Slice real quick uh, before we have to go. If a listener is listening in on this and has an idea for um, a, a question that needs to be answered in healthcare, is there a way for them to get involved? They can go to pcori.org 
And uh, there is a place to submit questions there. I, I would encourage listeners who are interested uh, to take a look at our website. It now has the results of a hundred, over a hundred now studies that have been completed and results reported out. You can search them by topic. It's very, very good to know. So PCORI.org. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for being here. I appreciate it. Um, very good information. My guests have been Dr. Sharon Brangman, the chair of the Department of Geriatrics, and Dr. Joe Selby from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, Health and Gun. up next, a genetics expert talks about the most common genetic abnormalities on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we're discussing genetic abnormalities with the Director of Medical Genetics at Upstate, Dr. Robert LaBelle. He's a professor with appointments in medicine, obstetrics and gynecology, pathology, and ethics. And today, he's agreed to talk about disorders caused by genetic abnormalities. Thanks for being here, Dr. LaBelle. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Well, let's start with what counts as a genetic abnormality. Um, there's there's a range, right? There is a range. Uh, some genetic abnormalities have to do with the presence or absence of an entire chromosome, others with a portion of a chromosome. Others have to do with a single gene that's undergone some kind of a change, and that might be uh, at the deepest molecular level of just the change of a single base pair. Um, and all of those count as genetic problems. So is chromosomal disorder, is that the same thing as a genetic abnormality? or? Well, it's a subset it's a of subset. genetic okay. abnormality. So the most common chromosome disorder is the presence of a third chromosome number, 21, and that's the underlying cause for the clinical condition called Down syndrome. How do you counsel a woman who learns she's carrying a baby with Down syndrome? How, what do you say to her? What, what are the, sort of the questions that, that patients like this would have for you? Well, most of the time the concern is, is the prognosis for the development of the child uh, with the condition. Uh, some people have a very hard time uh, holding on to any kind of hope for something that they would call normal uh, if their child is going to be born with Down syndrome. Other families who've had experience with people with Down syndrome sometimes feel more optimistic about that. So their personal experience is key to their perspective. Uh, I don't think I or anyone else sitting across the table from them can or should try to influence how they think and feel about the issue at hand. Um, so my goal always is to make sure they're as informed as possible about the biology of the problem, about the statistics in terms of development uh, so, for example, if Down syndrome is the question at hand, half of children with Down syndrome have a significant heart defect and half do not. 
So the half with the significant heart defect often can be identified by ultrasound examination during the pregnancy. And so if that is going to be an element in the decision process, it can usually be addressed and, and answered. Wow. Well, with scientific advances, there seems to be uh, a growing list of genetic disorders. If you look you know, online for a list, so which ones remain of most concern for uh, obstetricians and pediatricians? Which ones are most prevalent? Well, obstetricians actually have a list of genetic conditions that they're expected to think about when they are taking care of a pregnant woman. And some of them they think about by testing the pregnancy uh, itself. Others they think about by testing the woman. So, for example, um, all obstetricians are expected to offer a woman a blood test to see if she's a carrier for cystic fibrosis. If she is a carrier for cystic fibrosis, then her partner should be tested to see if he's a carrier. And if they both are carriers, then there's a 25% risk that the pregnancy would be affected by cystic fibrosis, and then they would offer testing of the pregnancy to see yes or no whether it Mm. is. Okay. And then there's others. um, Oh, yeah, there's a whole list. uh, I mean, there, there are blood tests, for example, to show whether this particular pregnancy has a higher risk for Down syndrome than is expected based on the mother's age. The risk for Down syndrome increases as women get older, starting at age 19, and continues getting higher as long as women are capable of, of being pregnant. Uh, it never reaches 100%. I think the maximum at age 49 is 15%, if I remember correctly. Mm. But the blood test would tell a person whose risk, say, based on age, is half a percent, that her risk in this pregnancy is 3%, say. And that's higher, but still it's most likely not present in the pregnancy. Then they're offered a test that's definitive to find out yes or no whether that's present. Oh, okay, I see. Well, are all genetic abnormalities, can they all be discovered um, during pregnancy? No, in fact, most cannot. Uh, on that ever-lengthening list, there are innumerable things, hundreds of things, that are not really on the radar of the obstetrician's world because they're just so rare that they're not going to be thought about and talked about. Things like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, Down syndrome, and, and some others that occur in, say, one out of a 1,000 or one out of 2,000 or one out of 5,000 pregnancies are considered common enough to be thought about. Huh. So, uh, well, it seems like, I mean, you can't reassure a woman that everything's fine with their pregnancy if, if there's a good chance that you're not going to be able to screen for certain things, right? Well, if the things are rare, then they all of them together add up to maybe 3%. So it's, it's all in how one approaches numbers. Uh, Everyone should understand that if they undertake a pregnancy, the risk of it not going well is not zero. It can never be zero. Some people have higher risks than others, and sometimes we can assign numbers to those and say this percent or that percent. But 15% of pregnancies miscarry right off the bat, before you ever get into the second trimester. So that's a big number, uh, you know, 15%. And then about 3% are going to lead to the birth of a child with a developmental disability of some type. 
about 5% are going to lead to the birth of a child with some, some structural problem, some malformation, some part of the body that's not built the way it's supposed to be. So those are just basic numbers that have to do with being human, have nothing okay. to do with the mother's age or ethnic background. It's just random, the fact of being human. Random things that happen. Wow. Yeah. So at birth, um, how do you become aware of a genetic abnormality at, at birth? Well, some of them are easy because they announce themselves right away at birth. A child is born, say, with a large uh, defect in the heart and a cleft palate. And so, so that's the, obvious. The, at, at the delivery room, if it hasn't already been seen prenatally, which sometimes it has, but, but if nobody picked it up by prenatal ultrasound, certainly the doctor at the delivery room is going to see that and then have to think about whether these are just accidents of development or have an underlying genetic cause. Okay. And are there some that, um, you know, the baby goes home and, and it's not until months or years later that something becomes apparent? Yes. So uh, I met a young woman once who had graduated college with uh, honors and uh, her life was all just great. She was in an accident uh, had a loss of consciousness, so they did a CAT scan of her brain to make sure she wasn't bleeding, and she woke up and was fine. And the CAT scan of the brain discovered a major abnormality in the structure of her brain, which had not affected her at all wow. in terms of learning or function or anything else. She was just a healthy woman in her 20s who had this very different structure uh, and somebody, if somebody had seen that structure at birth, they would have worried deeply that she was going to have developmental disabilities, <laughs> and they would have worried for nothing. Wow, interesting. Well, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Robert LaBelle. He's a professor with a number of appointments um, here at Upstate Pediatrics, Medicine, Obstetrics and Gynecology, Pathology and Ethics, and he's Medical Director of Medical Genetics at Upstate. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about um, the predictions of which child will be born with a genetic abnormality. Is there a difference between um, abnormalities that are inherited and those that are spontaneous? Well, yes, uh, a big difference. So uh, uh, a classic inherited abnormality would be something that my great-grandfather had, and he passed it to my grandfather, who gave it to my mother, who gave it to me, and I've given it to one of my daughters and one of my sons, uh, and it's just moving through the family. Obviously, if it's going through five generations, it's not totally disability, disabling, but it, but it might yet be an, an abnormality. Okay. Uh, so that would be hereditary in the classic sense. That's but, when we hear someone say that it runs in my family. Exactly. That's what they're talking yes, about. Yes, okay. right. And, and sometimes it's something trivial like the, uh, a big French-Canadian nose or, or a peculiarly shaped earlobe or okay. something. And then people make jokes about it and say, oh, all the Joneses have it. Okay. But in fact, only half of the Joneses have it because <laughs> it's a 50-50 chance with each pregnancy. So sometimes it's genetic, yes, but trivial, not, okay. not actually a health problem. Uh, obviously, if, of course, if it's really a health problem, then that makes it more important. Sure. But it might still be consistent with good general health and normal lifespan and normal intelligence and still be a hereditary genetic problem. Um, but the spontaneous part of your question is important. 
because all of us undergo changes in our genes all the time. Uh, it's actually not surprising if you stop to think about the numbers. We have three billion components of genetic information in each cell. We have to make a perfect copy of all three billion pieces of information every time a cell divides. And in your chair, there are a hundred trillion copies of that information that your parents deposited in you when you were conceived. A hundred trillion. On top of that, you lose a hundred billion cells every day just by being here, and you have to replace them. So you have to make a hundred billion copies of three billion things every day. You can't possibly not be making mistakes. And so some of those mistakes end up being mutations in a cell, and then all the cells that descend from that cell are going to have that mutation. So that's how brand new genetic problems appear in families that never heard of them before, because genes undergo changes. And mutations, which people think of as rare, right. aren't. <laughs> you do think of them as rare, but the numbers you just gave me, it, it's amazing there's not more. Right, yeah. Well, wow. there's a whole family of genes whose job it is to correct the errors. Okay. All right. Well, um, let me ask you this. If there's a certain disorder that runs in your family, can is there anything that would-be parents can do ahead of time um, to circumvent so that that doesn't show up in the child they want to create? There are two basic strategies. One has been around for about 40 years, and that is testing a pregnancy to see if the problem has been passed into the pregnancy and then making a decision as to whether to continue the pregnancy or not. Okay. Obviously, that can be highly fraught. It's very complicated and difficult choices, and it has everything to do with the burden that's perceived by the family, the burden of that condition. If the burden is considered light, then they're highly unlikely to terminate a pregnancy over it. If the burden is considered insurmountable, they might consider such a, a course of action, even though the idea might not come very easily to them. More recent years, about 20 years now, we've been able to do something called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Fertilization occurs in a dish in a laboratory, and there are several embryos in each in its own dish, and when they get to the eight cell stage, one cell is removed, and it's tested for the thing of interest. Mm -hmm. whatever that thing of interest is. And then the decision is made after they know which of the embryos has inherited the thing of interest, which embryo or embryos to put into the uterus to, to go to implant in the uterus and to develop into a pregnancy. This pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is complicated, expensive, hard to do, but it's real. It's there. It's an option. Um, is it uh, successful often? or It's almost always completely oh, successful, okay. uh, provided the implantation is successful. But that goes back to how many implantations are successful in an IVF setting, and that's never even close to 100%. I have to mention, though, that it always depends on knowing the precise genetic change that's in question. I was going to ask you um, if we're going to get to a point where genetic disorders can be fixed ahead of time, but it sounds like we're sort of on the cusp in, in some instances, if you know specifically what you're looking for, but are we going to get to a point where we can say, I, I don't want to have any genetic disorders, let's just take care of all of them beforehand? Or? No, that will never be possible. Okay. Uh, I've seen plenty of families over the years where we 
focused our attention on one genetic problem in the family that was known to be in the family and focused all our attention there and ended up blindsided by a, another different genetic problem that we hadn't anticipated the family was facing. Now, well, what about in terms of treatment or cures for genetic, with disorders that have a genetic basis? This is a very attractive and exciting idea that has hardly any practical utility because if you, say, have four dishes in the laboratory with four embryos, two of them have inherited the thing of interest and concern and two have not, you can put the two that have not inherited it into the uterus and have a set of twins that are free of the disorder. Or you can take the now 16 or 32 cell embryos that have inherited it and try to make it go away, which is a daunting task. Even at the 64 cell level, getting all 64 cells to, to fix their problem uh, is astonishingly hard to do. Why would we devote that kind of effort with uncertain outcomes to embryos that can be set aside in favor of embryos that are sitting in the other dishes and are perfectly fine with respect to the thing of interest. <laughs> Keeping right. in mind, thousands of other genes are there and there may be something else going on with them. Well, good point. My guest has been genetics expert, Dr. Robert LaBelle. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, is psychoanalytic therapy effective? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're talking about psychoanalytic theory with Dr. Michael Miller, a clinical psychologist and associate professor of Upstate's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Thank you for being here, Dr. Miller. You're welcome. Pleasure. I feel like we need to start with the definition of what psychoanalytic theory means. Um, theory or therapy? Yes, <laughs> both. <laughs> okay. uh, well, um, psychoanalytic therapy is actually, uh, of all the psychotherapies, uh, really um, the, the first one to, to be elaborated in any modern sense. It, it's uh, the version of psychotherapy that Freud came up with and that, um, uh, you know, all of the current psychotherapies are in one way or another based on. The Freud theories <laughs> yeah Freudian Freudian theory sure um, it's it's sort of based on the idea that um, well several ideas but one being that the things that give us trouble the symptoms that bring us to therapy have um, uh, a kind of meaning right that they're 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 a way of expressing something that we are unaware of um, feeling or thinking uh, and that we've been avoiding um, and so uh, psychoanalytic therapy attempts to um, allow the person to 
speak in a way that can express those things um, and make the symptom that they're experiencing less necessary. Does it have anything to do with personality development? Uh, sure, yeah. There, there's a whole uh, set of theory about personality development within uh, psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic theory. Uh, that's often what people read about in their intro to psych textbooks, uh, you know, Freud's psychosexual stages, and that drives a lot of people away. <laughs> um, I had just seen, I mean, when you think about psychoanalysis, you think of Sigmund Freud, and mm -hmm. I thought that there was a lot that he did with um, talking about personality development. But I didn't major in psychology. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so. yeah, like he he certainly did. Um, and he talked about the ways that um, personalities can be organized around different kind of moments of um, uh, interest or organization of your energy around around certain things. So that, uh, you know, some personalities um, become a lot more, concerned about control um, of their time, of their money, of, uh, you know, of, of whatever it is. Um, other personalities become a lot more concerned with um, uh, how much they're desired by other people. Um, uh, how other personalities become a lot more concerned with um, what they can get from other people. Um, so, uh, and Freud had ideas about what happens in infancy to, or not just infancy, but early childhood to, to sort of exaggerate those characteristics. Because all of this starts as young, right? The development of all of these traits sort of sure. goes back to childhood, right? Yeah, yeah. So, for example, you know, um, the very now unpopular ideas about like the oral stage, for example, right? There's there's a time in, in infancy where sort of everything happens at the level of the mouth, right? Like the kid is, is going to be fed or not going to be fed. Um, they're going to be crying or not. And when to stop them crying, a lot of the time you put something in their mouth. Uh, so, um, you know, Freud thought that um, uh, some people get sort of, like I said, kind of organized around that. So they might become more of an oral character, um, yeah, for example. But, you know, that's not something that um, uh, more modern psychoanalysis is too concerned about most of the time. Yeah. So Sigmund Freud, has that, is, is he someone who um, has emerged as, is, are his theories like controversial today? Yeah, um, uh, they are. The thing about Sigmund Freud is that he's often uh, sort of used in, in psychology classes as sort of like almost a prop to be dismissed, right? You you get two paragraphs in a book about Sigmund Freud, and it is the, you know, oral, anal, genital stage uh, stuff. And, um, you know, Freud was obsessed with sex and violence, and now he's been debunked and we move, move on. Unfortunately, the people who write those textbooks have often never read a word of Sigmund Freud and um, actually throw out a lot of the much more valuable ideas uh, that he um, uh, contributed. Have others uh, who came after him built on those other pieces that maybe have more staying power? Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, Freud died in the 1930s, and there have been uh, a number of theorists who sort of built on and extended his work um, so that more modern uh, psychoanalytic theory is much more concerned with uh, uh, attachments, for example, between, uh, you know, attachment styles uh, that the person might have or uh, relational styles or um, uh, uh, what the um, 
nature of the unconscious is. Uh, you know, some some theorists have really amplified uh, Freud's um, uh, elaboration of you know an unconscious part of the psyche. Interesting. So, does that help kind of change the definition of psychoanalytic theory um, that we kind of work with today? Um, yeah. So you know, it's. Uh, it's difficult to talk about one psychoanalytic theory because there have been so many splinters and so many different theorists, you know, developing different areas. So, um, uh, for example, the psychoanalytic theory that I'm most interested in has uh, a lot to do with um, the way uh, unconscious um, thoughts work uh, and uh, their relationship to uh, language. Um, uh, so, you know, there's one area of it uh, that is alive and well today. So how would you help a, a client or patient who, um, you know, has something that they're not aware of within them? How do you pull that out of them? Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, where psychoanalysis started, the first psychoanalytic patient um, uh, named it spontaneously the talking cure. And so, you know, it's always, always really sort of begins with and is centered around talking. So, uh, you know, a patient uh, might have a symptom and uh, they start talking about it. And there might be sort of, um, you know, little gaps and surprises like, you know, the famous like Freudian slip, right? You make a right. slip of the tongue and uh, the therapist is listening for those things that might seem insignificant that we didn't mean to say or words that come up again and again while the patient is talking about her experience. Uh, and if you think of those words as sort of like um, elevators <laughs> uh, that you can kind of take down a level uh, to stuff that maybe wasn't on the patient's mind at that moment, uh, but is still connected to their discourse about the symptom, then that can lead you to these unconscious contents that that are connected to the symptom and that might be driving it. So as a therapist, mm -hmm. um, you really have to be a, a brilliant listener to be able to pull this out or notice something that... At least a really hardworking listener. A hardworking yeah. listener. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Well, um, how, does, uh, how does psychoanalytic therapy differ from other psychological therapies? Yeah. Or does it? Uh, I think it does. Um, you know, there's a lot in common because they all sort of originated there, but... Uh, the other sort of major category of psychotherapy um, is called CBT, uh, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, um, and there are many of those too. But the, the big difference um, is the attention to the idea of an unconscious. Um, th that's not really uh, necessary or, or a part of cognitive behavioral theory, which you know, sees uh, symptoms as, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, but basically mm -hmm. sees them as questions of learning the wrong things, right? Like um, being exposed to, um, uh, uh, you know, things in the environment that reinforce you to behave in certain ways, right? And so CBT is about challenging um, the habits of thought that you've learned that have become pathological and about changing the way you interact with your environment um, and uh, thereby like eliminating the symptom. Psychoanalysis doesn't even necessarily see the symptom to, uh, as inherently pathological. It doesn't see it as something that 
exactly needs to be eliminated. It seems that as something that needs to be learned from uh, and listened to, and that uh, when we listen to the symptom, uh, we can have a better idea of what's going on with the person. And then often the symptom sort of drops away and the person becomes more autonomous. This makes me think of that nature versus nurture question, Mm -hmm. almost. I mean, similar, right? If you're talking about psychoanalytic being things that are inherent in a person and the cognitive behavioral therapy model being more looking at the things that are outside, right? The influences from the environment and such. Uh, I think that both are concerned with the environment and and the ways that we've, like, maybe internalized it. you know, and, and psychoanalysis is also, you know, very much about looking at, at our history, you know, so in that sense, it, it, um, it sees, and you were asking about personality development, right? It sees history as, as very important. It wouldn't see us as like, you know, uh, in the biological sense, right? Like, uh, uh, biological theory right now is very interested in, do you have the gene for depression? And, you know, are you predisposed, um, just sort of, Fundamentally, uh, psychoanalysis Mm -hmm. like CBT does see history as extremely important. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Michael Miller, a clinical psychologist and associate professor in Upstate's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He's also co-director of Upstate Student Counseling Services. Um, I want to ask you, how does a person find the, the therapist that is going to offer what they want. Um, because there's two different, well, there's more than two, but there, you we're talking about two different styles. Yeah, yeah. How does a, how does a patient locate the person that's going to be best for them? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the internet is a great resource. There are uh, listings of, um, local, uh, mental health professionals and generally they will, um, indicate what their uh, what we call theoretical orientation is. Uh, ah, so, okay. you, you know, on my spot, there's something that says, you know, psychoanalytic and, you know, on other people's, uh, they might say CBT or interpersonal or whatever it is that they're interested in. Are there certain um, mental health disorders that are better for a psychoanalytic treatment or not? Uh <laughs> I think that, you know, psychoanalytic treatment is applicable to uh, lots of things, Um, you know, uh, so no, I wouldn't necessarily (laughs) say that that some are better than others. I I think that maybe it's a lot more about what is the person uh, who's looking for help, um, how are they willing to engage, right? Um, Are they willing to sort of confront things that might be uncomfortable for them? Are they willing to realize that maybe there's more going on inside than they wanted to admit to themselves? Uh, or are they much more interested in uh, sort of getting the symptom out of the way in a, in a quick, expedient manner? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's a good point, just mm-hmm. sort of what they're wanting to get out of the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, can you walk me through, like, psychoanalytic theory? Do, is it ever paired with medications? Sure. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Lots Sometimes. of people will, will take a psychiatric medication and be in, in therapy at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, what about individual therapy versus group therapy? Is psychoanalytic ever part of a group therapy session or no? Yeah, there are groups that, that run based on those ideas for sure. And there's a whole psychoanalytic uh, literature uh, around group work. Um, uh, I think most often it is an individual thing, though, um, uh, 
because one unconscious is uh, so big already. <laughs> it's, okay. uh, it's quite a challenge to work with 10 at once. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, too, uh, because you're active in the student counseling services, you're mm-hmm. a co-director. Um, does psychoanalytic theory uh, ever come up in your role there? Absolutely. Uh, it's how I work as a clinician. So it's, it's always so it's just part of Yeah, it's always active for me. Mm-hmm. What does student counseling service do here? Uh, well, we provide um, uh, individual therapy, we provide medication services, we provide uh, outreach um, to the university uh, community. Um, we're also providing uh, suicide prevention uh, training to all of the medical students. Uh, oh. So those are a few of the things. Neat. Is psychoanalytic therapy evidence-based? Do we know, do we have proof that it works? Yeah, psychoanalytic therapy uh, works, and um, the kind of evidence uh that we've used um, has changed over the years. Um, in the beginning, it was much more case study based, but as psychology um, uh, evolved and um, became more interested in replicable um, scientific results, it took psychoanalysis a little while to uh, catch up to that paradigm, but there's um, plenty of evidence out there uh, now. Well, thank you. This has been very informative. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. My guest has been clinical psychologist and associate professor, Dr. Michael Miller, the co-director of Upstate Student Counseling Services. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poet Norma Wylow is British. She lives on the smallest of the seven main islands of the Canaries, an island called El Hierro. Her poem title sends us into the world of art and then spins us further into a dual reality. Here is Norma Wylow's Van Gogh's Bed. It's the shape that makes it unbelievable. Beyond the first impression, the room with no shadow, bed and chairs fastened in honey colors, depict a smooth grain, invite a pause, or the black line to divide ceiling and wall that pave the paintings in a slant corner, sense of movement the window urges, lilac doors, three points of access in a friendly but askew room. Once, I drew a patient in the ward, captured her with clumsy fingers, yet it bonded us, a mass of wire for hair on the cotton sheets, limb hoisted in a plaster cast, bed in impossible angles with the wheels turned out, caught in motion, made her smile. She returned one day with a photocopy of the snapshot, black ink on glossy white paper, slipped from my hands and bleached like the room. Been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. 
Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll hear about a team approach that combines surgery with radiation therapy for breast cancer. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.